You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by GigPro, the staffing solution for businesses and workers in the hospitality industry. Check out gigpro.com and download the GigPro app today. We talk about food. We talk about music. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. Today, we sit down with chef and founder of Edible Beats, Justin Cucci, to chat about his lifelong love of restaurants and being born into the industry. He shows stories of growing up in his family's restaurant, the Waverly Inn, eventually making his way to Denver, and looking out for the future of his employees by making them owners. Then we dig into the archives for an old soul three-time Grammy nominee performance from Roddy Romero. He's showcasing the modern-day Louisiana sound, and it is an absolute blast to hear some Cajun and Creole music right here on Snacky Tunes. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy the show here on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you. 
never let you fall Eternity Is how long I live Don't you know I would never leave Girl, I love you so They say love Jeff, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So it's always nice to chat these days, now that I live on the West Coast, with a fellow ex-New Yorker. And um, you grew up there, born to the industry. What was it like growing up in restaurants and growing up in restaurants during the time that you did? Um. It was a trip. I was. I feel like I was almost inbred into the restaurant industry. I mean, both <laughs> my parents worked in, uh, and my grandparents all worked in a family business, uh, the Waverly Inn, which has just been there forever and is still there. I think it's currently owned by Graydon Carter from Vanity Fair. So I had to drop a name already. And, and growing, growing up there was really incredible. I have so many great memories from really learning to walk there and then pretty much um, every day after school, that was my home. So I'd come there after school, get in everybody's way, drive everybody crazy. And I got to almost have like an eating disorder by always ordering exactly what I wanted off a menu. Therefore, not eating the things I probably should have eaten growing up that my parents would have wanted me to eat, you know, uh, whether that's vegetables or certain cuts of meat. So um, it was just amazing, though. It was super dynamic. Uh, it felt like a place of like love and family for me. And I still sort of like have that like reverence for restaurants. Um, and then ultimately just got to grow up there and wanted to work there and started to just do anything I could from I remember like there's this making salads in the back and trying to buy a skateboard when I was like eight or nine. And then finally, um, letting, you know, my grand convincing my grandparents that I, I should be able to work here. It wasn't fair that everybody in my family worked here because they were trying to like push me, don't ever work here, go to school, be a lawyer, be a doctor, do something with your life, but just do not set foot in this restaurant as a career. Really? Because so many times when you have such an institution and a singular restaurant, people are looking to the future. Who's going to take it over? Who's going to keep, keep it going? Um, what kept drawing you back in? I know you mentioned the community and the family stuff, but what was it about that world that said, this is my life, I have no choice? That's a great question. Um, I know that they just want, saw better for me. You know, they probably just that same thing that your parents or grandparents, they want to see you do something they were not able to do. <clears throat> and I also know what a grind it was. Um, so 
I think I was just drawn to the the culture probably before that word existed in the restaurant of, you know, we, there was so many people who had, I grew up there from the chefs who ultimately were there for over 45 years. There was two of them uh, from the servers who some of them were there for 15, 20 years. And uh, it just became a place that just that obviously the hustle, the bustle. And then ultimately my, I think my grandmother just had this incredible sense of hospitality that just drew me to this, like really this art of making people feel comfortable and, and connecting with people, which as a New Yorker was not mm-hmm. in my DNA. I wanted to be disconnected <laughs> from people. Sure. Uh, I wanted to be like two ships passing in the night. But when I got into the restaurant, it became a place where I could connect. So somehow it became something more than just like, you know, a passion for the industry or for food. When did you realize that compared to other kids that you grew up with, that this was a different type of approach to life, a different lifestyle, and that you're thinking of hosting and welcoming people into this space that was sort of your second home was maybe different than everyone else around you. I think when all my friends would, we, I'd want to hang out with them and they're like, oh, you want to go to the park? You want to go downtown? It's like, can we go to the Waverly? Because it became <laughs> this playground of, of both food uh, and, you know, um, just getting in trouble, going in the basement and finding things and just creating disturbances. So I think it just became like the coolest clubhouse in New York City because there's not a lot of places kids can go to hang out safely. Although then you mentioned what it was like growing up in the industry. Then New York was a much different place. Um, There was no, you know, kids missing on milk cartons or uh, I think a lot of the bad things weren't really known to happen to kids. So I remember just like walking to school when I was like nine years old, when I went to public school and having a free reign in the city. So there was a freedom associated with it, even at a young age, which I imagine if I was there now, would be the opposite growing up. Right. Um, You alluded to this time in New York or even the industry in general that was completely different. I feel like everything now is super examined. And I think for the right reasons of, because it went so unexamined, so for so long. After you started working, after you got to a certain age, when did you start to think about what was happening in restaurants? When did things start bumping for you as someone who's part of this community? That really happened probably when I was old enough to be, uh, you know, I think I was maybe like 20. And I had still, at that point, I had quit college. I, you know, it was like, I, wanted to take computer science, but after one semester, I knew that would have no future for me because this stupid code that I was writing would not lead me anywhere. So I was like, this is ridiculous. No one's ever going to need this ridiculous code to to do things. And computers never went anywhere, right? None of that technology ever went anywhere. So I smartly knew (laughs) that the Waverly Inn was the place to go. Um, but I think it, it really hit me when I felt there was a, a chasm between or chasm chasm between sort of where I was at um, in my sort of like awareness of restaurants and food. Because I had a love for eating, of course. So I would eat all over the place. I had a passion for eating out and different foods and different ethnic foods. But I also felt like the industry started to grow in a way that the Waverly was not growing. The Waverly was all about its traditional you know, sort of steeped in its past in, in, in the best possible way. Sure. And so I started to really realize that there was so much more that we could bring to the Waverly Inn when I was about 20 and I was a manager there and had a voice. And I would probably drive my grandparents crazy with everything from like 
Why can't we put goat cheese on the menu? What about a dessert that uses, you know, fresh fruit? Because a lot of the things there just weren't of that mindset. And so I was constantly pulling and pushing at them for ideas. And I remember the one thing that he would say just about every time, because he would just be exhausted. I was exhausting, I'm sure, with my passion for like ideas. And he'd say, look, when you open your own restaurant, you could do whatever the hell you want. But in the meantime, this is not the place for it. In the most loving way, he said that. And so many, most of my ideas just ended up on the cutting room floor. There was no life to them because the Waverlyans identity was steeped in its DNA. And I think that's what a lot of people wanted. But I do think after seeing Great and Carter and what happened there afterwards, there was uh, um, an, an opportunity for that place to grow into the future while still being rooted into its past. Right. And so obviously you start to see not a future for yourself at Waverly Inn, but New York at that time was, I could say, the leading dining destination city in America. You know, obviously other cities have risen since then. Did you bounce around and ultimately find that this wasn't the city for you, maybe because of your family? Or what was it about New York that said, I don't want to plant my final flag here? Yeah, um, I definitely at one point, especially when they wanted to sell it, I, I was so enamored with buying it. I remember <clears throat> putting an ad in the Village Voice and meeting very random, strange people who supposedly had money to help me buy it. None of them came to fruition. So when they did sell it, I was pretty devastated. I definitely like felt um, like, man, this should be mine. I should have had an opportunity, but they couldn't own or finance it. They needed the money. So I did bounce around and I remember I bartended at like SOBs, which Ooh. is a Brazilian jazz oh, yeah. club. Well, yeah. Um, for short, yeah, it's a great place, short amount of time. And then I ended up working at a place called Sfuzi, which at one point was, it was up by Lincoln Center or Rockefeller Center somewhere. And it was just an amazing experience that was very short-lived. I worked there for three or four months. I loved it. I was so engrossed in it. And I had a friend come by one day after work. And probably because I was so comfortable in restaurants and never had these lines drawn, I got fired when my friends came because they, one of them, I think there was like glass in his drink because I served him a drink. And then he's like, man, I got glass in my drink. I was like, oh, come around, make yourself another one. And as soon as that happened, that was like an immediate violation. So anyway, after living in New York 27 years about at that point, I really felt that I had been just overwhelmed by that city. I knew there was a, a food scene, but I felt, you know, really disconnected from like wanting to be there. And the Waverly was part of that. I felt like that was my home. I lived three blocks from there in Greenwich Village. And I just started to feel this like disconnect that just needed to be solved by leaving. I didn't know where at the time, but I ended up going to Key West. Um, uh, so I felt overwhelmed with the 27 years of life in New York and just sort of set out with real no clear plan. Yeah, I think if you're every year lucky enough to have a clubhouse in New York City <laughs> and then lose it. It's very tough to stay. It's really, really hard because, you know, unless you have some crazy apartment, which most of us didn't or will never do, it's that third place that is like, this is my anchor. This is where we meet. And when that place and community goes or someone else is the new owner of the clubhouse, yeah, it's tough to look at the city through the same lens. That's so well said, because um, I did live in a great apartment that was my parents, so it was rent controlled, but it was also mm. just a railroad apartment. Sure. The, ki yeah. the, the kitchen was the size of a closet. The bathroom was the size of a, a smaller closet. So <clears throat> it was 
jarring to not have that amazing clubhouse for all the reasons you mentioned. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's take a quick musical break and we come back. We're going to chat about um, you going to Denver and you getting your own spots and finally getting to lay out the culture and the uh, ideas that you wanted from your youth. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Oh, 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 
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are here with Chef Justin Cucci, and we are chatting about his leaving New York and search for his own space, his new clubhouse. What drew you to Denver? And I would love for you to mark the year because Colorado has become its own thing now, but as a dining destination back then, it was a playground for the very rich and Tony who would flock to the ski resorts and uh, some, you know, the legend of, of Colorado lamb. Nice. Let's say that, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I think that's accurate for what I felt when I got here. Um, I had made a detour to Key West. And so I was lucky enough to open two restaurants there. And, and after feeling overwhelmed in, you know, 27 years in New York after, I don't know, maybe 10 years <clears throat> or so in Key West, I was definitely underwhelmed culturally. Um, you know, that disconnect was maybe even more so in Key West because I didn't relate to the people, the culture, uh, the music, the food, all of it was just like, I was Woody Allen in Key West, I guess for, oh, that's probably a terrible thing now to say, I forgot about that. But anyway, that sort of, um, uh, you know, liberal New York cultural Jew, being put in the middle of, you know, the tropics and everything that has to offer. Um, so anyway, I got to Denver in 2006. Uh, my, my mother died in, um, in Key West and uh, the restaurant. We were actually partners in the restaurant. And so after that, I was like, I'm selling these restaurants and getting out of here and making a beeline. And so I was, A, lucky enough to sell the restaurants because most restaurants don't have a life after you know, sure. the original owner. So both restaurants sold and it was 2006 and I made a beeline out to Denver to the Highlands neighborhood, which is where a lot of my restaurants are. And so when I came out here, it was jarring. It was like, man, I have this opportunity to plant seeds somewhere. And I saw this Highlands neighborhood as sort of like a, you know, probably Brooklyn 20 years ago, you know, before it was, um, just super cool, gentrified, you know, all the things that are maybe like good and bad is probably what Highlands was going through. So I really connected with like, man, it's so nice to not be in the city. Like I didn't want to be in the middle of the city having lived in Manhattan 27 years. Yeah. And probably people who live in Brooklyn do it because, you know, they have a parking spot. They might be able to have kids and a dog and all those things I did have at that time. I want to be able to park my car. I want to have a, a small yard where my kids and dog can play. And I don't want to live like connected to my neighbors. I wanted to have a little bit of air. So what a true New York answer that you went with <laughs> place to park your car first. Anyway, oh. continue. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. Um, so uh, then um, this neighborhood and the food scene were both at odds. The neighborhood was super dynamic, great old buildings, but the food scene was concerning. And I remember when I finally found where I put Root down, it was an old gas station. It was a mid-century gas station. It was just a cool space. And growing up in New York, I loved just repurposed old buildings. And I was really just like, I had an idea. I felt like, okay, I'm sort of in my 40s. And I was definitely disenfranchised with the the industry at that point because I had ground grounded out for so long. And there was very little reward uh, in it, both in my personal life, both in, you know, financially, you know, I think at that point, I maybe didn't even own a car, didn't own a house, just had like not a lot to my name, except these proceeds from the restaurant, which I promised myself I was going to do something really mm. adult, adult like with it. Sure. So I really remember just telling 
my wife at the time, I was like, you know what? It's probably, I'm just going to like push all of this on black or red and it's either going to really, really work or I'm just going to change my life and be something different because I didn't want to just keep doing the same thing. So my point there is that I felt empowered and really able to take a risk by saying, fuck it. I'm just going to do what I feel like I should do, regardless of Denver's food scene, because there was not a lot going on. And everybody I spoke to about all my ideas was like, you might want to tone it down a little bit. Or you're like, I don't know why you're going in that direction. There's no restaurants like that. Are you sure people are going to come right, to right, right. eat there? So I really felt like I didn't want to go to any restaurant. Everyone would say, oh, you should just go to this restaurant. They're, they're really great. And you should get some ideas from them. And I remember like, no, I don't want to see any what anybody else is doing. I just want to do what's in my head and feel like I'm taking a chance and doing something the way I want to do it. And that's what Root Down was at the end of the day. It was just like blinders on. I'm going to do it as if I'm in New York or San Francisco or Denver. It didn't matter where I was. I wanted to do the vision based on what I thought my experience and my passions and things that were informing me at the time. And so that's a kind of what Root Down became is just an idea in a vacuum and it was mm. a, it was probably four or five ideas too many, which oddly <laughs> became the strength is that it had so many layers to it and had so many stories to it and had so many aspects to it that yes, there was a batshit crazyism, but that's not what I was going for. It was just, that was when you put all these ideas and you sort of make a martini out of it, sometimes there's, it's just no longer martini, right? It becomes... Right a mixed cocktail of four and five liqueurs. And that's what it became. A little Long Island, Denver. <laughs> <iced tea. laughs> exactly. Like who thought of that idea? And then like people like, this actually tastes good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So beyond the concepts themselves, and I'll we'll get into that a little bit, um, what did you want to set out culture-wise? Because you had seen a lot in New York, you'd seen a lot in Key West, and the industry was obviously – not yet at the crossroads that it's came to be, but being able to establish a place that had more latitude to play around with, what did you want to instill value-wise? Um, <clears throat> I think one of the early things that I probably came to, both in my awareness and my own self, and maybe there was this happening in the world, my wife one day told me, like, you know, being married to you is like being married to Tony Soprano because restaurants are just so destructive in a way in terms of the waste they create, the, you know, they don't foster careers. I mean, it was said in the best possible way. There's no, obviously, you know, murder and stuff happening. But I really like thought of that because we're just, we just use things like, you know, Tony Soprano was a user and restaurants are users. And I really thought like, man, I don't want to do that. I don't want to feel like it's just always using it, whether it's resources, whether it's people, whether it's you know, buildings. And so I really felt like I wanted to be aware of resources, human resources, you know, the resources of, you know, um, food, the food system. And so it probably culturally, it was about how do we do things more responsibly? How do we start to be aware of food? Because, you know, when you live in New York, it's this island where if you want it, you snap your fingers, it's there. When you're done with it, it's gone. It never exists. There's no, you know, garbage, um, uh, facilities or recycling facilities or any of that in New York. It's just gone. They take it away and it's magical. But when you live in the rest of the world, you have to have an, a relationship with resources. And so I immediately wanted to be more aware of the, whether it was the power we used, you know, we started to sign up for wind credits 
the water we use. I didn't want to have water bottles and sell this thing that restaurants make so much money selling, right? They always make you feel stupid if you want tap water or bottled water, you know, with a big smile. And so we agreed, we're not going to sell bottled water. We're going to do our own filtered water and give it away for free. And then people, it was like, I wanted to do the opposite of what I, at that point I felt, which is there's no collaboration in restaurants. Yeah, there's yeah, this yeah. line of people who make all the decisions and everybody else just show up, do your thing and then leave so we can have our fun collaborating. And I wanted to have a full collaborative culture where everybody has that. a voice, where um, I always felt like one of the things I say at the staff meetings is question authority, knowing that mm. I'm the authority, but I want to be questioned. <laughs> I want people to hold me to a higher standard in case I can't or in case I have a blind spot and people are like, why yeah. the hell are you doing this? Um, and so I think I wanted to have a, a much more of a dialogue than a monologue. Um, and that was part of the culture I think that w I wanted to have there. You know, it definitely feels <clears throat> like more of this group creative band mentality. And I know that music has been a big part of your inspiration and your influence um, beyond just the artists you love is the structure of multiple people who are adding their influence really important to you? And did you pull that from your lifelong love of, of, of music? Yeah, I think it, without knowing it, it became that like what one or two people can do, you know, under let's say great circumstances, three, four or five under even, you know, more unique circumstances can do better things. And so it did feel like having been in bands and loved bands, but less individual people in music, uh, that that always felt like the best stuff came from this X factor, this ability to have the the sum is greater than its parts. And I was definitely like wanting to have that at where I worked. I didn't want to have to just go in and be like the top of the food chain. I, I want to be obsolete, actually. And it took me years to figure out that I really want to be obsolete at the restaurants. Um, and so it did inform me that that was a culture that really appealed to me in music. And so why can't that happen in food? Um, which is very similar in its, you know, sort of love and origins and its place in society as music is. Right. <clears throat> and that's not to say there isn't creative tension and, you know, legendary fights from Conflict. some of the closest people. <laughs> but in some ways, if you know how to lean into that conflict and, and recognize it, the greatest art and creations can come out of it. That is exactly the, the difference maker because conflict and differences in vision, all of that human nature stuff is going to play out, which is why most people say, I'm just going to do this by myself and I'll tell people how I want it done. I don't want to hear their opinion. But once you realize, which I soon early did early on, that, man, there's if you can have a set of ground rules of how to work through conflict resolution – how to work through safe communication, how to work through, you know, hearing each other and having and respecting opinions and all of those things, then those conflicts can be like embraced because those are moments of change and they can lead you to better places and stronger relationships. And so just like maybe great bands who have maybe figured that out, or maybe they just do drugs and figure it out. I don't know. I, we didn't take that route. Uh, then I think to your point, then you can find that sort of next level that exists in a group or in what you're trying to create. Now you've gone <clears throat> as far as pairing food and music together in some of your venues and Ophelia's electric soapbox. It's an actual music venue. What do you love about beyond just what you've taken from group dynamics and communication, but the actual pairing of food and music together? Well, if one thing has probably been true 
it's that people in, I think, hospitality and love of food, love of music is usually close behind. So I think there's automatically a, a roommate, right? They're good roommates. And um, so Ophelia's definitely was about, man, people love music here and um, food. Let's marry those, but let's take it one step further and let's make the experience of the music not just be like, it's the people on stage, which of course, that's where the magic happens. But what if the venue and the hospitality experience and just the overall reverence for food and music were kind of put together? And that's sort of how Ophelia's came about is like, we wanted it to be a place where all of it worked together. It wasn't like being in a big concrete hallway that remotely smelled like Coors Light and, you know, faint urine smell. And you just sort of like all stood there shoegazing while the band did its thing. And then you, you know, left. This was about like trying to create what I think must have happened earlier in music when some of these, you know, iconic venues, maybe like the Fillmore East or the Winterland or some of these really key musical venues created this culture of music where the reverence of it was more than just finding a place to play. Yeah. So you've been in Denver, you've grown, you have multiple spots, you have your edible beats group. And, you know, you mentioned about becoming dispensable and that's tough as you own multiple venues and you are the, the leader of this group. But you've also tapped into this trend that I've seen in a few other restaurants, which is this thing called employee stock ownership plan. And I've seen it because there's even this sandwich place down the street from us that'll go unnamed, but there's an owner and there's all the people who have worked there and the guy's giving it to his son. And the rumor is that everyone there who's made it great is going to leave because they're like, the son is just coming in. Who is this guy? And you know, I don't want to step on what you're doing, but the idea of giving restaurants and businesses to the people who actually make it up, seeing the humanity in it is a bit of, it's a full circle for you in many ways, but I'd love for you to talk about what your plan is, what you're doing and, and how you are in the best way possible, making yourself obsolete. Um, well, I will say that, you know, there's probably not as much as known about ESOPs. And I will say that what sort of led me to that fountain to drink is that, it also became a, a thing that a couple of years, like five years ago, I was really obsessed with like the win-win, which is such a simple concept, but it, I would just try and say like, no matter what decision we make, the other side has to win also. And that's a really hard challenge to make decisions in a business that's like, okay, we're going to raise prices. Okay, we win, but can the other side win as well? And so whatever it was, I wanted to work through problems as a win-win. And so um, early on, I had heard about ESOPs and I really think they're the win-win. They might even be the win-win-win, which I'll get to in a minute. And I was like, man, there's a way to you know, have a, a, a strategic exit plan for myself one day. It's not right now. And there's a way to have like a legacy, but there's also a way for all the people, like in the example you mentioned, where people aren't going to be just like, oh, Justin's gone and he sold it to these investors, this other person, we're piecing out. Um, I felt a strong responsibility for everybody who worked there, even though many have come and gone. And I, I also felt a, a strange relationship to the city of Denver that I felt like, man, I, I didn't want to just peace out and leave something there that I felt had a, a, a footprint in Denver. I felt like Denver and the city, because I did take loans for the city and I did work within the, 
the city a lot of ways. I had SBA loans. I was able to finance everything by myself, which is already very rare. You can't do an ESOP unless you own 100% of it. So I really felt a debt of gratitude to like, boy, the the Department of Economic Development, the the, the people who live in Denver who embraced the, these ideas, and also you know my bank and the the ESOP. I'm sorry, the SBA loans. So um, I really felt like I wanted to a be respectful of that, and I had a lot of gratitude for that. More than that, it was the people who do what they do every day. The older I got, and the harder it was for me to do those 10-hour shifts. And the the more awareness I had about uh, work-life balance and what it takes to sacrifice to be in a restaurant. Because when you're all in it together, you expect everybody to rise to that level. And if they don't, then they're somehow not meeting the expectations. And I was in that point a lot of years. I was like, I was doing those 60, 70-hour weeks and showing up every day. And the people who weren't, weren't at that level. But then as my awareness changed, my age changed, my life work balance changed, I really felt like the people who show up even for 30 hours are giving a piece of themselves to this for a a greater good. The greater good is the guest. Uh, I always tell people like, you know, it used to be like, you know, the boss signs your paycheck. I did a bait and switch and I tricked my bank into, I signed the word the guest to look like my signature. And so every paycheck says the guest, not my name, Mm. because I want them to know I don't pay you. The guest pays you. Because if that guest doesn't come in, none of us get paid. Oh, I love that. And so I really wanted to, you know, have a, a way that I, me and my family and all the work and time that I put in and we put in could be valued, but also the employees could be valued. And then ultimately the win and the win is that, but the third win is the guest because ultimately if both of us win, the third win is going to be the guests are going to have a better experience. Um, there's certain tax things with ESOPs that allow us not to be quite so taxed as regular businesses federally. And that's going to give Mm. us an advantage because we might not have to raise our prices as much. We might be able to get better product. And so I felt at the end of the day, the the guest is going to win here. So it felt like, man, this is what I've been trying to do for years. So the ESOP was to me the only answer. And then um, when COVID came, uh, oddly enough, uh, we were signing our our documents to do this in uh, May of 2020. COVID came, as you know, in March. And when I saw the bottom fallout of everything of, you know, after working really hard with a lot of my team, really hard for a dozen years, I thought, man, that that dream is gone because there's no way a bank is going to lend money to do an ESOP when we get out of this, which was true. Um, there was no bank that was willing to lend money. Uh, but I still held out hope, held out hope that the ESOP could happen. So the ESOP has been a five-year journey from really its inception to its fruition, which was earlier this year in February of 2022. Congratulations. I mean, Thank you. Real adoptive son of, uh, <laughs> of Denver, um, coming back to give back to the rest of the family, um, which feels like something that you learned from where you were born and where you came from. 100%. It was there one way or the other. Even though they kicked me out of the Waverly Inn and I couldn't buy it, <laughs> I know that they had their own, you know, life circumstances and they sold that restaurant for what feels like pennies. Like, I feel like, man, if I only knew now what I knew then or vice versa. Yeah, but you wouldn't have done what you've done now and you couldn't have helped all the other people. So sometimes families knows best, even though they know in the moment you may not think so. Um, Well, Justin, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to sit and chat with us. If people want to follow along with your adventures or check out the restaurants. What's the best place for them to go? 
Oh boy, uh, probably just our website um, or our not my social media, but the rest of social media. I definitely again try to make myself obsolete, and I don't uh, I don't mess with that stuff. Um, but I think our, the websites and our social media hopefully will tell us the story. Ultimately, I just hope it's something to be experienced, you know. And I think all the restaurants. Uh, I'll just give a quick sell. I think have a really beautiful um, balance of reclaimed and repurposed. Um, ideas throughout, not just in the way we, you know, design the the restaurants. We use a lot of reclaimed and repurposed, but the buildings themselves have amazing stories from, you know, the mid-century gas station from this hundred-year-old brothel that Ophelia's is in. We have Linger, who's in a mortuary. Uh, Vital Roots in an old candy factory, um, and so I think there are just great experiences. And the food is about tearing down walls and culture, not being you know, beholden to a certain culture in a certain part of the world. To me, growing up in New York, it was all about cross-culturalism. And our menus reflect that without trying to do fusion, right? It's just about having a wider swatch of ideas that we can pull from and just give homage to so many amazing cultures, food, uh, in different ways. We keep a thread in the restaurants, so they're not just like batshit crazy. But (laughs) I would say the best way is come to the restaurants and, you know, try it. And real quick, what's that website? Oh, yes. Thank you. It's either ediblebeats.com. It's ediblebeats.com and all the restaurants are linked to there. Amazing. Well, Justin, thank you so much. Thank you to uh, MC as well for helping set this up. We have a song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio.
GigPro is the solution to the restaurant staffing crisis. We're offering businesses the chance to instantly fill their shifts and food and beverage pros the chance for better wages, more flexibility in their schedules and benefits. If you're a business, go to gigpro.com, create your free account, and post the shifts you need filled. If you're a hospitality worker, download the GigPro app, create your profile, start applying to shifts, and start getting paid. We know what hospitality businesses and workers need because we spent decades working in the industry ourselves. If you're tired of wasting money on broken recruiting tools or sending your resume into the void, you owe it to yourself to give GigPro a shot. Whether it's a couple shifts or a full-time hire, GigPro lets you 86 the broken staffing status quo and embrace a better future. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Roddy Romero. Nice Hello. to meet you. Hello. Pleasure to meet you. Well, we met a couple of days ago. Yes. Yeah, but we'll say in our official capacities, in professional <laughs> roles, if you will. Today. 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 Uh, I want to do a little bit of framing for people of where we are, because in reading about your music and what you play, uh, I'll just, you know, Zydeco, Swamp Rock, Cajun music, Creole music. Can you clarify all for the uneducated? Sorts of descriptions all, there. Yeah, can you clarify for the uneducated masses? Well, uh, these days the description is uh, the Lafayette sound, maybe, or more of uh, what Lafayette may sound like. Uh, all of those sounds that you described is, is definitely where I come from and what uh, moves me in terms of music. Uh, it's all the sounds that I heard growing up as a kid here uh, in Lafayette. Uh, the hub city, the the heart of Acadiana, so to speak, um, from from Zodico, uh, El Cido's Blues and Zodico Club, growing up, going there and listening to uh, the famous Buckwheat Zodico, and listening to uh, artists like Zachary Richard, more of a songwriter approach of Cajun music, Cajun rocker, and uh, and 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 back to our great public uh, radio station KRVS, uh, still making all of these sounds uh, each and every day and every weekend. Uh, it's a great blend. It's a great gumbo. It's, uh, it's what we sound like here. Did the sounds used to be more separated? Like you went to a place for Zydeco, you went for a place for Swamp Rock, you went for a place for blues, you went for a place for rock and roll? Did it, was it segmented uh, that way? Or did yeah, it, like I think it, so. Growing up, uh, I started playing music when I was 12 years old. Um, what was your first love? <laughs> my first love for the mu- musical instrument uh well it was the french box it was the melodeon it was the 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 accordion what we call it here but it's not called an accordion it's not an accordion it's a a tin button box um much like our harmonica it's diatonic so it's there's no sharps or flats you pull one note you push it it's two different sounds so that was my first love i first heard that from my grandfather he played a handful of songs for for us on Sunday afternoons when we'd visit the old people in the country. 
What songs did he play? He played uh, he played one song. Uh, it was called Fifi Poncho, or Fifi Foncho, whatever side of the the river you're from. Uh, he played that song a lot, so I remember that one the most, uh, and maybe a couple of waltzes. But uh, again, it was this fascinating um, uh, orchestra in a box. It was a it was a it was a carnival. It was a Ferris wheel. It was all of that that sounded like that to a five year old, six year old child. Right. You know, so that that's what drew me in first. And you toured around as a, I don't want to say a courting prodigy, but a, a, you could really play. Well, in those days, uh, it, I, I started when I was nine. Um, I started having the love, or at least my, my earliest memories were five, six years old. I had an, uh, a great uncle, uh, Nock Black is what they called him. He was blind. He played the French box. We'll call it the French box for this program. And, uh, By its rightful name, as it should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he played uh, just, you know, like the vieux temps, the old time, that nobody, like t- today, nobody plays this way. So that's, that's like, it, it gives me the goosebumps talking about it. That's the earliest memories that I have musically in the family. And again, with my grandfather, and then uh, my father bought the French box when I was nine years old for my brother and I. My brother's 10 years uh, older than me. Two kids, one French box. Did you fight over it? Exactly. And whatever reason, because he's older and he's bigger, uh, I won. So I locked myself in the room for the next two years with the French box and vinyl records of, of my parents. This was French music from the 1960s, dance hall music, like people like Belton Richard, Aldous Roger. Uh, these were, this was Cajun music at a time where... It was uh, it was twin fiddles. It was steel guitar. It was lots of Bob Wills influence coming through Louisiana. So that's the records that I grew up on, and like a lightning bolt, this this young guy, and I say young, he was in his twenties or you know early thirties then, then being nineteen eighty eight or so, called Wayne Toops, and he he was from the country. He played this French box. He had a band that backed him that had a piano, that had electric guitars, that had electric bass, that had drums. And it sounded like the Almond Brothers uh, singing in French from the bayou or from the rice fields of Crowley. Uh, and that, that, that changed a path, and, and everything else has been different after that. The sounds of the bayou has changed after that. And just for quick understanding, how long has your family been in this area? Uh, well, since I was born, uh, my, my dad is from uh, the Ridge, uh, Judis area. My mother is from Rain, Louisiana, uh, a little bit further west from Lafayette. When they met, they met at a, at a bar called the OST Club, the old, old Spanish Trail. Uh, they, they met over a dance and fell in love, and they were, you know, teenagers, and people got married back then when they were teenagers. Do you think people meet that way anymore? I don't, people meet I don't know. over like a dance? I don't think they get married as teenagers, thankfully. No. Uh, but <laughs> no. there's lots of meeting at the dance halls. Yes. Still. And how did your music evolve? You, you know, you toured um, at a young age. When did guitar enter your life? When did singing enter your life? And, and who guided you onto that path? Yeah. Um, I, I, for me, you know, like like it changed with Wayne Toops, the, my... my I got out of out of the dance hall records, and then there, this was this rock and roll sound that kind of entered, but it was still fronting 
the, the French box was still the front of the, of the show. So it, it, people like Zachary Richard and, and then <clears throat> I, I got invited to play the Montreal Jazz Fest when I was 13 years old. How did did that happen? How did happen? they find I you? I have no idea. I mean, this is uh, you know I don't won't I won't tell people yeah. your age, but this was definitely pre-internet. Yes, yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah. So well, did, and you have no. I mean, I guess if you know you, at that time if you're the if you're the French rock prodigy, if you're the only <laughs> young kid at that time playing you know the old time music, then that's how they're going to find you. That's how it happened. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. At least we'll talk about it yeah. in that way. So it. Uh, so I played that jazz fest, and then then I discovered this guy called Sonny Landreth, and he played the bottleneck slide. He lived in Lafayette. He was from Mississippi. I heard these sounds that that were that he was producing out of this bottleneck and this this Firebird Gibson guitar that I never heard in my life at that time before. My only records were you know pedal steel guitars and twin fiddles and nice smooth sound, and it was it was another voice that that. Uh, drew me in, intrigued me, it, it, it pulled me, it grabbed me, it did everything that it shook my bones. And I knew at that point in my life that here's another path that, well, let's, let's, let's entertain this and, and I want a guitar now. Do you remember how it made you feel? Sure. Uh, I, um, I couldn't... There's, there's this one time that um, it's in Montreal, it's at the Jazz Fest, I hear this guitar down the road. It's a sound check. It's during the daytime. And again, it's, it's something that I never heard. And I fi- found myself walking faster and faster and picking up speed to the stage and then seeing Sonny up on the stage and doing these things that something I never heard before. It was, it's like, you know, listening to that first Rolling Stone record or, or the first Bob Dylan record, or for me, the first Clifton Chenier record, Zadiko Cha-Cha, that just you know, it hits you in the forehead and it says, hey, man, this is, this is something special here. If you don't feel this, you must be dead. Can we hear a song? Sure. What are you going to play for us first? Uh, I'm going to play a song that uh, was penned by Eric Adcock, my uh, musical brother, for a long, long time. And I, uh, I got the chance to arrange the song in this very studio maybe about five or six years ago for an album called Gulfstream. The song is called Gulfstream. Here we are with Roddy Romero, live from Dockside Studios on Snacky Tunes. Dad's been shucking dozens since 42 Iron tub ice down full of false staff brew Black had a son, Bobby Charles called Blue Catholic church bells told the Louisiana blues Oyster rake scraping down Grand Highway. Don't get no more salty than Barataria Bay. A hundred years my family's done it this way. 
Some folks call it work, but it's just another day. And in life, there's always love. Comes into your heart from up above. Gather my dreams and put them out to sea. Gulf Stream and I'm free. Politicians, trappers, priests, and more. They've all strolled through these double French doors. I was so busy just trying to keep their glasses full. Folks laughing, drinking, just shooting the bull. Vermilion parish sunsets across my bow. Just slipped off the edge and I don't know how. Turn the key in the lock and close up shop. The owl flies round the old steeple's clock. And in life there's always love. Comes into your heart from up above. Gather my dreams and put them out to sea. Gulf Stream and I'm free. The neon light gently taps me on the shoulder. And the ice in the glass melts under the whiskey that I pour. Salt in the air from the storm off the coast. As I pull from my glass and offer up this toast, it's been a good run, it's been a good haul. My nets are full, time to pull in my trawl. Miss I me. For me, especially for my pair. Que te filet soit plein de freedom. And in life, there's always love. Comes into your heart from up above. Gather my dreams. Put them out to sea Gulf Stream and I'm free That's a bit rough. It was perfect. <laughs>
You mentioned Eric Adcock, who is your co-founder, brother of music, of the Hub City All-Stars. Sure. Uh, formed 25 years ago. Or more. Or more. Uh, how did you two meet? Uh, how did you come to, in your musical evolution, form this band? And, and how has it stayed together for so long? Yeah, good questions. Uh, let me start by saying we've been making music together for close to 30 years, maybe. Um we met through, I think maybe my brother was introduced or another friend musician. It's very hazy. It goes so long back. Uh, a lot of late nights. But we, we, lived, <laughs> <In between. clears throat> we lived in the same neighborhood or at least uh, adjoining neighborhoods. And there weren't very many young, young guys, young cats at that time playing uh, Louisiana blues or French music or Zydeco music or Cajun music at that time. So we were bound or destined or uh it was uh in our cards to hook up uh and there after that we we wrote songs about playing cards and drinking and a lot of things and you know the rest is history as they all say but we've made music together uh and we've traveled the world and we've seen so many places and uh we've made some brilliant records along the way that had a few grammy nominations and a few pats on the back and it all feels amazing, and it all feels good, and, you know, every moment passes, and we're all getting older, and I just hope that we can continue to play music and do the same thing. Well, what's amazing about this music is that uh, it's timeless. So yeah. you don't you don't look at someone who's 80 playing this music and be like, ooh, you're out of place. You're, well, like, you're you almost know, like right in place. I, growing up and playing French music at the age 13, I was the only kid playing at right. that time. And every, all of the musicians that were surrounding me were older. They were they were older people. I've always played old music. I've always played music that I felt like were my parents' music. But in my mind, in my perspective, it's all timeless, like you said. it's It all feels like where we come from. It's all a part of us. It's our sound. We travel the world, and we take it to, to other places, and people feel that whatever we're feeling, you know, however you, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's really tough to put words to for me, but just the feeling. I mean, you're still growing into the music. You're sure. still a young guy. I'm, I haven't played <laughs> for my peers very much still. It, right. We still, you know, draw an older crowd out there. The demographic that we play for is a, a bit older. Uh, they go to dances to dance. They, they're, they show their appreciation, appreciation by dancing, you know, more than applause. What do you learn so. from playing with someone for almost three decades? How does it evolve, and, and what language do you develop, and how does this, this <clears throat> sound continue to grow and expand from, from being and having such a consistent partner? You learn different languages, like non-communication in terms of not verbally saying something, but musically, uh, or, or an eye cue, or an elbow cue, you know, in, li- in the live setting. You learn things like that. You learn things that are are, are more natural. Um, I heard this 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 uh, podcast the other day of uh, uh, Rusty and Doug Kershaw, and and when Rusty was making records, he he had this. I don't know what he called it. There's a there was a uh, a term for it, but it was just like this unknown energy that if he was sitting in the same room, he can anticipate what the other musician was going to do or transfer that energy. And when you play with somebody for so long, you, you, that 
it either happens or it doesn't, you know, you, you're, you, you feel that energy. Uh, place factors into a lot of your music. Uh, Hub City is sure. another name for, for Lafayette. Yeah. Um, you talk about Vermilionville, Vermilionville Parish and, and Gulfstream. Right. Everyone's hometown affects their music. The, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, yeah. as you mentioned yeah. earlier, all the New York great punk bands. How does this place affect your music? And outside of the cultural heritage that comes from the music you listen to, what is it about this place that seeps into the music that you're making and writing? Well, if if you grow up uh, waking up first thing and you smell a roux on the stove, that is going to change your day. That's going to change your outlook on life and how you uh, present yourself to the world. When you that's the first thing that you smell and coffee grounds brewing. <clears throat> I feel like we how what we want to write about is is very it's plentiful here. It's uh there's so many raconteurs, there's so many storytellers in, in our parts in this area. You can go down to the to the uh, corner bar and meet all sorts of characters and and uh, hear all sorts of stories. And so people people want to share their knowledge, share their stories, share their bullshit, share whatever they have to share here more than most places in the world that I've been to. And you know, sometimes it's a it's it's the beautiful, and then sometimes it's the not so beautiful. But that's life. It's everything in between. Can we hear another song? Yeah, absolutely. What are you gonna play for us? I'm gonna play a song called Majoli, and uh, I wrote this along with Michael Juan Nunez and also Eric Adcock. Uh... And it's gonna try to go like this. Thank you. 
One of the things that's clear about the music you write with Eric are the heroes that you worship, incorporate, bring in, cover, pay homage to. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that Eric talked about was the Bobby Charles cover that's on, on Gulfstream. And he mentioned that you had been noodling around on it for years and you decided after taking a writer's block break to come <coughs> and record it for Gulfstream. I want to talk about covering your heroes because it's something that I think seems to always happen on records or live things, but never really discuss how musicians actually pick that or what comes ready to it. So when you begin to approach a cover, what has to be in that song that speaks to you or or wants you to make it in some way your own? Well, uh, before it starts with a song, I think for me more so, it's still uh, uh, where I'm from. It's still regional. It's still uh, I want to pay homage to the people that that are surround that surround me here and growing up. Uh, the guys like Clifton Chenier and the old guys, and I know it's it's like it's passing on the legacy of our music. Whether I'm interpreting that song. Uh, note for note or adjusting it to 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 fit my perspective or to what is comfortable in in the realm of my musicality as you know as a musician so 
when it be, when it becomes the focus to the song itself, the story. Uh, yeah, I really, I have to feel a part of it. I have to feel something. I have to feel empathy for the character that's singing it. I have to 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 really dive in, or I'm just covering a song. It's not going to translate the same emotion if if I don't pour everything that I have into that. Uh, when I recorded I Hope, I've been noodling with the song for a while. It was such a beautiful song. It didn't mean anything until my life was falling apart in divorce. And then it, it you know, the song took a new meaning. It took a, a new turn. Uh, and it still takes new turns. I, I I sing it now still in performance settings, but it doesn't but I don't have the same emotions that I did once we laid the song down in the studio here in at Dockside, you know, three, four or five years ago by now. When you say noodling around for a while, how how long is a while? Uh, well, yeah, I take time. A, a while could be a year, a while could be a couple of years, it it could be ten years. It took so long for us to record the record previous to Gulfstream uh, uh, over a 10-year span just for the sake of, I don't know, life happens and life gets in the middle and in the way sometimes. But um, I, I tend to lay down material, lay down record material, and then sit on it for a bit and then, you know, try to to get a new fresh set of ears, a fresh... Uh, uh, again, a perspective on, on what this should sound like that I'm making. And then most of the time I drive myself crazy with going back and listening and, oh, that, that could be better and this could be better. And, you know, today here at Dockside, that's kind of one of those days where I felt like I came here to sing some songs, re-sing some songs. And, you know, I have to be convinced by this amazing uh, engineer, producer, Justin Dockett, that, you know, that sounds really good. So, you know... Every artist does that, I'm sure. Do you find it harder to break your own songs or to break a cover? You know, that's, I think, that's a great question. I feel like we've broken our songs much easier than breaking covers, but damn it, those covers sound so good and they're such great songs that I, I want to keep doing them and keep spreading them spreading them out to the world and have new listeners hear them and hear the sound of Louisiana and for people to come back here. Have any of the people you've covered been alive and commented back on what your take or your version of it? Well, uh, we had one, and I say we, Eric and I, uh, we wrote a song for Buckwheat, the late great Buckwheat's Zonico. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an original song. It's called No Need for a Crown, and it basically talks about, you know, in the Zodico community, uh, there's lots of self-proclamation of kings, uh, and it's 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 a part of the it's a part of the 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 talk. It's part of the walk in the culture, and it's a beautiful thing. So, the the song that we wrote for Buckwheat is is really just saying that he's the best, and there's been no need for a crown. Anyway, he was uh, getting really sick and uh, toward the end of his life, unfortunately. 
we got a chance to play him the song, and he sent nothing but good, positive vibes and, and appreciation for it. And uh, so in that case, it holds a special place in our heart. Last question, two parts. Taking it back to tons. When you're in the kitchen cooking, if there is music, what are you listening to? Well, we have uh, some great Latinas in uh, working in the kitchen, and they're playing some beautiful Nortenia music on their iPhones occasionally while, while they're prepping and while things are going on. Uh, we, we don't have a jukebox yet, but I'm pretty sure that we're going to put more music in tons before too long. And what is your specialty that you consider your best dish above all else? Oh, I love making sauce. I love making sauces. Switch the proteins, it doesn't matter. I just love the process of cooking down onions and cooking down the trinity, the garlic, whatever you want to put into it. Uh, I love that process of just taking the time and, and working the heat. Amazing. Um, what's coming up next? Tours, more recordings? More tours, more recordings. Uh, the Hub City All-Stars, we have a few big gigs here this year coming up already. I'm doing some solo things. I've got a trio that I'm working, going back to Europe later in the year, going up to Canada for the big Congrès Mondial, Acadian uh, celebrations in the summertime. So lots of things happening, yeah. Amazing. Where can people find you, find your music, find your tour dates? Um, come to Lafayette, Louisiana and just <laughs> knock on some doors and ask for my name. <laughs> no, RoddyRomero.com, RoddyRomeroMusic.com as well. And just search Roddy Romero. You'll, you can find something. What are you going to take us out with? Uh, I'll do one of those covers. Perfect. I was hoping you'd say that. Big thank you to Holly and tons. Big thank you for Justin to opening up Dockside for us and letting us record this uh, special episode of Snacky Tunes today. We really appreciate it. Roddy, thank, thank you, you. For, for being here. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, another episode of Snacky Tunes. Thanks for listening. Ain't no sacred holy cow Got no pretty ruby mouth To smile and charm me through No clever silver tongue To flatter people in the doing but I want them to Ain't much for pushing buttons Pulling puppet strings or fussing Besides making silly rhymes I really ain't much good at nothing But my heart keeps me amused In this big world of confusion Cause I'm a dreamer Hallelujah I'm a dreamer No blue blood touch of class No laminated pass To where the in crowd hangs No flaming rum dessert No front row seats reserved When old blue eyes sings But break it down and love it it's more than just a promise No gift to all the girls But I got the one I wanted And through any storm that blows She still loves me Yes, she knows that I'm a dreamer Hallelujah
I'm a dreamer. pavement all around green meadows can't be found they will be dreamers when every cotton field is gone hope my children will have grown to be dreamers no boss to pay no mind no turning wheels to grind blade of grass disturbed or sleeping baby stirred there'll be no noise at all just a silent voice that calls to all the dreamers hallelujah I'm a dreamer and my heart keeps me amused Hallelujah, I'm a dreamer We talk about food Snacky Tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.